Amen. Amen. Do you remember where you were on Wednesday, April the 27th, 2011? Some of you think, man, there's no way I can remember, but some of you remember exactly where you were because that was the day that the Tuscaloosa-Birmingham tornado came through this area. Cost 64 people their lives and did $2 billion, billion dollars worth of property damage. That storm was so massive that when it crossed Interstate 65 just north of town, it was a mile and a half wide. Some of you remember exactly where you were and how you felt on that day. And I've talked to people that, some of you that have li- that lived through that, and you've told me about what it was like to be hunkered down in a, in a shelter or in a basement just praying, God, let this pass and let us get through it. And you remember probably, don't you, the fear that you you felt and the feeling of overwhelming power that was beyond your control. In fact, the the one word that seems to come up when people talk about that storm or storms like it is the word helpless. Helpless. And y'all know what that's like, don't you? I remember watching that afterwards on the news. We still lived, of course, in North Carolina at the time and watched it on the news and just the devastation uh, just this incredible images, especially that came out of Tuscaloosa. And I remember, I think it was the day after the storm that President Obama at the time that he toured Tuscaloosa and seeing those images, it looked just like somebody had dropped a nuclear bomb. It was just hard to fathom. But y'all didn't watch that on the news, did you? You remember how you felt and you remember what it was like and you remember that feeling of helplessness. What it was like to come out of your home when it was all over and to look around and realize it's going to take a long time before life gets back to normal. Or to see a neighbor's home just disappear, swept away by this uncontrollable storm. If you remember what you felt that day, is it really any wonder that one of the most familiar cliches that Christians have to talk about times of suffering and adversity is the word storms? We talk about going through storms in life when things are not going the way we wish that they would. And that's why. Because there are times in life, can I get a witness, where it feels like everything is falling apart. Where it feels like you are just hunkered down praying, God, please let this pass from me. Let me make it through. And there are some seasons of life you go through that when it's over, you come out to survey the landscape around you and realize things will never be normal again. Some of you may feel exactly that way this morning. You may look calm and peaceful on the outside, but on the inside, on the inside, things feel like they are flying to pieces, and you feel that panic, and you feel that fear. You feel that helplessness, that you are out of control. And maybe you even wonder, why didn't God stop this? You might even think, I was, I was following Jesus, or thought I was following Jesus to get out of stuff like this. What went wrong? What went wrong? I'm glad you're here this morning. Because today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where Jesus himself goes through a storm that seems to threaten his very life and the lives of those closest to him. And it's in this storm that Jesus goes through where we learn this incredible lesson. And that is that in this storm, Jesus is as calm as God himself. And he cares as much as God himself cares. And he is in control as much as God himself is in control. Because he is God himself. Let me show you this in Matthew chapter number 8. And we're going to read verse 23 through 27. Matthew chapter 8 and verse number 23. And I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read the word of God this morning as a way to honor his word. Somebody asks, why do we stand when we read the word of God at Sharon Heights? A couple reasons why. If you ever go to court, 
When the judge walks in, you stand up. If you ever go to a wedding, when the bride walks in, you stand up. Because they are, in those moments, the center of attention. God's Word now is the center of our attention. Matthew eight twenty three, And when he, that's Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? You can be seated. Trust the Lord. He's going to honor His Word today. Now, when you read the Gospel of Matthew, the one word that kind of hangs over the two chapters, uh, Matthew 8 and 9, that we're considering for these weeks at Sharon Heights, is the word authority. Matthew is writing to show us that Jesus has authority to reign as the King of Israel. He's the one that the prophets preached about. He's the one that the people longed for. Jesus is the King of Israel. And Matthew wants us to understand that if Jesus is the king of Israel, then he is the king of kings. And he should reign not only, as it were, on a literal throne in Israel, but Jesus should reign in our hearts as well. And so Matthew is just piling on the evidence, giving us miracle after miracle and story after story to say Jesus has all power. He has power over disease. He has power over demons. He has power, even we will see in chapter 9, over death itself. And he claims to have the power to forgive sin. He is king. But now Matthew is going to add kind of another layer to Jesus' authority by taking us into uncharted territory and show us that Jesus has authority over the weather. Now, like I said a second ago, Christians, we use this story and stories like it in the Bible to talk about storms of life. And because this story is so familiar to us, you know, Jesus is in a storm, he, he stands up and says, peace be still, and everybody lives happily ever after. We probably don't really see how incredible this miracle in Matthew chapter 8 is. Here's why. Because every human being that has ever lived has lived their life at the mercy of the weather. Now, we don't get that as much today as they would have in, in Jesus' day because we have, you know, James Spann and modern meteorological techniques and... Uh, we live a pretty comfortable lifestyle where very, very rarely are we threatened by the weather until you have a day like April 27, 2011 that reminds you there are things in this world that you cannot control. It happened to me just yesterday. I was driving down uh, Interstate 20 and the rain for a season was so hard I had to really slow down and focus to make sure that I was going to be safe. I had to adjust my plans because the weather was beyond my control. How many people do you think in the history of our world, how many people do you think have died because crops didn't get enough rain? Or because crops got too much rain? Even powerful people like Napoleon and ambitious people like Adolf Hitler, they have had their plans changed and the world history shaped by the weather. Apparently it snows in Russia. And if you want to go back and do a little digging in American history, the only reason there is a United States of America today is because there was a tornado that repelled the British troops during the War of 1812. That's a fact of history. Google it. It's true. We can't control the weather. Now, we can complain about it. You better believe that. Sometimes, maybe like 10% of the time, we can predict it. We can survive it. We can't control it. But here in this story, all of a sudden, there's a man in our world who speaks and the wind listens. He can control the weather. Who is this man? And that's what the disciples are left asking at the end of the story. What, what manner, who is this 
What kind of man is this? And so what you see when this story ends is the shock that the disciples feel in this moment. And this is a story, maybe familiar to us, but it is a story that is full of surprises. In fact, there are four of them that I want to give you today as we talk about this storm. And here's the first surprise that I see in this passage of Scripture. And that is in verse 23. Jesus leads them into the storm. That's the first surprise. Jesus leads them into the storm. Now, we do ourselves a really, really big disservice if we just take this passage and we just pull it away from its context and we don't understand what's happening. But we talked about it last week in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, and the story that comes before this, as Jesus is talking to people about what it means to really follow him, and Jesus says, look, if you follow me, you might follow me into places that are hard. You might follow me in the places that are uncomfortable. And Jesus says to a man who, who, who professes to be willing to follow him wherever he goes, he says, listen, you need to know that I don't know where I'm going to lay my head tonight. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head tonight. You need to know that following me may not be easy. And now Jesus leads his followers into a place that is not easy. He leads them right into the boat, knowing that the boat is going to go right into the storm. So understand this and make sure you get this right away today. These men are not in this storm because they weren't following Jesus. They're not in this storm because they are not right with God. They are not in this storm because they don't love Him. They are in this storm because they do love Him. It's because they follow Jesus that everything is going to fall apart to them. But I see in our hearts many times, I know in my heart, man, sometimes there's this really costly misconception that we have that says, if I follow Jesus, then everything is going to fall in place. If I follow Jesus, then everything's going to be easy. If I follow, that's why I follow him, right? So I can have my best life now. That's what this is, that's what this is all about. But friends, embedded deep in that kind of thinking is really deep sort of self-righteousness that says, if I am good and good enough, then God owes me good. And so we come to church, we, we pay our tithes. I'm not preaching against paying your tithes. Please don't misunderstand it. Please help us, Lord. We come to church, we pay our tithes, we, we raise our kids, try and raise them right, we try and be good neighbors and try and be good people, and we think, Lord, I've done all of this, so why, uh, why are my kids acting the way they're acting? God, this isn't right, this isn't fair. Why is my health falling apart? Why am I living with chronic pain? Why did I get this diagnosis? Why did you take through death somebody that I love? Lord, I was following you. How could you do this to me? I want you to know today, as your pastor, as a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that God's people suffer. Life is going to hurt you. It's going to be hard on you whether you follow Him or not, but sometimes following Him brings even more difficult pain and more complex questions and difficulties in faith. Where we cry out like the psalmist did in Psalm chapter 10, verse number 4. If we can get that verse on the screen, I want you to see this. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? That verse was written by somebody who loved God. Wondering, Lord, why is this happening? Where are you at? Why has my life turned out this way? But if we really think that following Jesus means life is going to be easy, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Eventually, life is going to get hard and you're going to quit following Jesus. And there are probably people who used to sit in the seat you're, you've got your seat seated in right now that were following Jesus, or they thought they were following Jesus, and then life got hard and they walked away. You know people like that, don't you? That at one time would raise their hands and sing loudly and cry during worship. But then when things 
just got to be overwhelming. When they experienced the helplessness of a storm in life, they walked away. Because if we are using Jesus to get an easy life, when life's not easy, then we're not going to have any use for Jesus. And you need to know today that there is an entire cottage industry of so-called preachers and churches that are preaching that very message. That if you have enough faith, then you will be healthier than you've ever been. Wealthier than you could possibly imagine. That if you believe in what they call the promises of God, and if you, you know, it probably wouldn't hurt to sow a little bit into their ministry too, because, you know, they need a new swimming pool. If you do that, then God is going to bless you and make your life easy. Those people are false prophets. They are wolves who consume the flock of God. Do not give them your money. Do not give them your time. Do not give them your attention. Your best life is not going to be now. If you follow Jesus, your best life is going to be in heaven. That's what God calls us to understand. Is it true that if we follow Jesus, He will bless us? Yes. A million times yes. But get it in your mind and in your heart, I pray, that He is the blessing that God gives. The blessing is not necessarily good health or a perfect family. Jesus is the blessing. Think about these disciples in the middle of this storm. There was no better place to be on planet earth that night than in this boat with Jesus. Why? Because that's where He was. Was it windy? Yes. Was it scary? Yes. Was the water piling in? Were they afraid? Yes. But thank God that's where Jesus was. Where would you rather be than with Him? So maybe we need to take an inventory of our hearts today and ask ourselves, Lord, would I really have cancer with Him than be healthy without Him? Lord, would I rather have a divorce a broken family with Jesus, or would I rather have a perfect family, perfect relationships without Him? What do our hearts really long for? It surprises us that Jesus leads them into the storm. But here's the second surprise in this text. Jesus sleeps during the storm. It's going from bad to worse, isn't it? The Bible says there arose a great storm on the sea. That wasn't uncommon on the Sea of Galilee. It still happens today, of course, that the cold, cold air from the mountains would come down onto the, the warm lake air. And the Sea of Galilee is more of a lake, really. And, and there would be storms that would just, just come up out of nowhere. And that wouldn't be unusual. The men in the boat, his disciples, the majority of them spent their life as fishermen on boats like this in the Sea of Galilee. They knew these waters. They were used to being in storms. They were used to, to dealing with this kind of problem. But things get out of hand for them in a hurry. And the Bible tells you that, doesn't it? Verse number 24, Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. Now, I'm going to tell you all, just to be honest with you, I don't know a lot about navigating open water. But I do know that when the water gets in the boat, that's a problem. It's one thing to be in a boat in a storm, but something else when the storm's inside the boat. And the Bible says now that the storm is inside the boat and the disciples, they're helpless. They're out of control. They realize that this is going to kill them. This is it. And so they do. The only thing they can do, they go to Jesus. And where do they find him? In verse number 24, they find him asleep. Now, Matthew does not clue us in on how they felt about that. They felt probably about the way you would have felt about it. But Matthew doesn't tell us, but Mark does. And in Mark chapter 4 and verse number 38... 
you'll see how they interpret Jesus' sleeping. He was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, here's what Matthew doesn't tell, tell us, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Is that not how we often interpret the Lord's silence? Or what seems to be his inactivity? Is that not exactly how we look at Jesus many times in our lives? Lord, do you not care? Lord, if you cared for me, I wouldn't be in this situation. Lord, you could have stopped this. You're supposed to care about me. Why am I here? Why is my marriage in this situation in the end? Why why does my heart still, after all the years of loss, still feel so overwhelmed by grief? Why, Lord, am I living every day with chronic pain? Lord, do you not care about me? Some of you are here today probably asking those kind of questions. That's how the disciples interpret Jesus' nap. But how can we, as people who are not in a storm today, physically anyway, how, can we, how should we interpret that? Well, I think there are two things we need to learn from this. And the first one is about how much Jesus cares for us. They, don't think, they think Jesus' nap is proof that he doesn't care, but it's actually proof he does care. And here's why. It may take me a minute to get there, and it's going to involve a lot of deep theology, so y'all hang on. I know, I know some of y'all really, really long for deep theological preaching, and some of y'all just fell asleep. But there is, for those three of you that are still awake, there is a deep, theological reason that Jesus is asleep on the boat. Okay? So I want you to make sure you're paying attention and want to make sure you get it. Jesus was asleep on the boat because he was tired. So, Jesus came into this world as a human being. And sometimes we so focus on the deity of Christ that Jesus was God, and we should because he was and he is, that we underemphasize the fact that Jesus was a man. And Jesus was and is a man. And he was a man that experienced the fullness of what it means to be human. Jesus had to eat. Jesus got tired. Jesus had to get his hair cut, had to trim his fingernails. Jesus here is tired because he's had a long season of ministry where he's been casting out demons and healing the sick. It's been a long day for Jesus preaching and teaching and doing the miraculous. And physically, as a man, Jesus is tired. So think about what this passage of Scripture is showing you right here. It's showing you that Jesus came into this world as a man who would embrace weakness, who would embrace vulnerability, who would, it seems at least, be threatened by a storm that could have killed him. Why? So that he could be threatened and weak and vulnerable and die on the cross. This is why he came. He came as a man so that he could come and take the sins of men on himself. He embraced our flesh and our weakness so that he could die in our place. Jesus here asleep as a man is proof that God cares and it's proof that God loves because it's proof that God in love sent his son to a cross. And I would want to encourage you and challenge you today to take this lesson and take it to heart in the storms that you walk through in life because we are so quick to measure God's love by the circumstances that are happening around us or by how we feel about them. Lord, you must not love me because I don't have the money I wish I had. Lord, you must not love me because my family's not doing what I wish. You must not love me because I don't feel good. Friend, do not measure God's love for you by the circumstances you're in today. Measure God's love for you as it's poured out in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where we go to get the final answer about His grace. That's where we find the final word about His love. That's where we always have to look to see He really cares. And it's why the Bible says to us in places like 1 Peter 5, 7 that we can cast all of our anxieties on Him. 
Cast all your cares upon Him because He cares for you. Is there any greater thing that I could declare to you today than to say He cares? He cares, even when you feel like He don't. But there's another lesson here. That is, Jesus cares, yes, but His nap proves something equally as important. And that is, Jesus always cares, but He's never worried. You know why He's asleep? Because He's tired and He's able to sleep. That's it. And why wouldn't He sleep? So how could He sleep in the middle of the storm? Here's why. Because He knew that in His Father's will, He did not come to die in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. He came to die on a cross. This was not His time. This was not God's purpose ultimately for Him. And so He goes and rests trusting in the hand of His Father. He always cares, but He's never worried. Now I know some of you are worried about everything in life. You worry uh, on a competitive level. You worry about anything and everything. When there's nothing to worry about, you're worried because you know it's coming. You know. (laughs) I just want you to know two really quick things. First of all, the Bible says it's a sin to worry. And the reason that it's a sin to worry is because it really is the sin of you trying to be God. Don't. You're not equipped. It'll kill you. But second, I want you to know this. And that it's important that you get this. I, I really do. Even though it's a sin to worry, I want to give you permission today. And I think God would give you this permission. You have every right to worry about anything that God's worried about. If God's worried, you ought to be worried. If there's some situation that he's looking at today and he says, this is beyond my power to control, you need to be worried. If there's some situation that is so complex it, it exhausts his wisdom, you can worry about it. If there's any detail of this world that escapes his sovereign providence, worry about it. But they're in. And he ain't. So do like Jesus did and lay your head down at night and sleep for the glory of God. Why? Because verses like Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 15 are still in the Word of God. Isaiah chapter 40. It would be good for you if you still got your Bible open probably to turn there. We've got the verses on the screen. But you need to underline these verses. You need to memorize them. You need to know them because they tell us about our God. And that's the question. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Well, that's a question. Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. And are accounted as the dust of the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. For some of you that are living in fear today, nothing is going to help you more than the Bible's view of who God is. He always cares, but he's never worried. So that's the second surprise. Jesus is asleep. The first surprise is that Jesus led them into the storm. Here's the third surprise. The third surprise is that Jesus talks to the disciples during the storm. Jesus talks to the disciples during the storm. So they come to Jesus. They wake him up. Lord, do you not care that we're perishing? They come in verse 25 and they say, Save us, Lord. Save us, Lord. And then Jesus does something peculiar. But you've got to pay careful attention to the words of the text. Jesus talks to them before he says anything to the storm. Did you notice that? Before we look at that, I do want to just emphasize one thought. And that is that for all the, the, the lack of faith the disciples had and for all the fear that they had, for all the, the grief that we give them from this passage and all the passages just like it, let's give them credit here. They bring it to the right place, don't they? 
And they do the right thing. It might have been their last resort when it should have been their first. But finally, in desperation, they come to Jesus and they say, Help us, Lord. Please help us. We are dying. Save us. And you may feel today, you may be wondering, what can I do? And maybe you're tired of fighting for control in your storms. And you're tired of doing everything you can to fix it. The best thing you can do is what the disciples did here and come to Jesus. And tell him honestly, tell him directly, tell him passionately. Jesus, here's where it's at. Here's why my life's falling apart. Here's why I'm having a hard time trusting you. Here's why I need you. Save me. They bring it to the right place. They have the right Savior. Now, I'm going to say something right now that's going to sound really, really dumb. I mean, it's going to sound really stupid. But if you'll think about it, if you'll think with me about this, it's going to be one of the most important things you could ever hear. You ready? I'm telling you, it's dumb. You're going to be wondering, thinking, we pay him to do this? Of course, you might be thinking, Brother Jesse, we're used to dumb stuff. It'll be just fine. <laughs> Are you ready? Here it is. Whatever you trust or whatever you go to or whatever you depend on to save you, that is your Savior. Whatever you depend on to save you is your Savior. In other words, wherever you go when you need help, that really is your Savior. Some people, when life falls apart, they run to the Savior of chemicals, don't they? Drugs, alcohol, whatever. Other people think that. They throw themselves into their job thinking making more money or having more accomplishments. You know, they can just throw money at all their problems and fix them because we all know that works so well. We depend on people and relationships, what they can offer us. That's going to save me if I can get that. It's going to fix everything that's wrong in the world if I can just have these people love me and accept me. Maybe for all of our boasts and our claims to be Christians, maybe we need to ask ourselves today, what are we really trusting to save us? What are we really depending on to fix us? Well, they come to the right place. But then Jesus begins to talk to them before he fixes the storm. And you know, if you've walked with the Lord for any length of time and you've walked with Jesus through adversity and difficulty, you know what he's doing here, don't you? And Jesus is addressing, here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is addressing the problem inside of them before he addresses the problem around them. That's what he always does in us, isn't it? He's not so much worried about the weather, but he's concerned with their hearts because he loves them and he loves you too much to leave you in fear. And he wants to get to the very bottom, at the very, very deepest level, the roots of our unbelief, and dig them up and plant in its place confidence that he is God alone. And that we can trust Him no matter what. In fact, you see that working through this story. Because the Bible says that there on the sea, then there's a great storm. And then the Bible says that Jesus speaks to the sea, and there's a great calm. But then you see the disciples experience a great fear, don't they? Because now they realize that Jesus is somebody that is far beyond anything they've known. Did you know that that's Jesus' work in your life always? His work in your life on good days and on bad days in things that seem like blessings, in things that seem like curses. Jesus' work in your life, in cancer, in grief, in death, in any situation, is always to show you His greatness. It's always to show you His glory, to get to the root of what is really causing you fear, and to dig it up and to plant in its place His greatness. So that you really are trusting in Him alone to deliver you and save you, and that with confidence in Him, you have nothing to fear. It's kind of like going to the dentist. If I'm going to be honest with you today, 
I hate dentists. Now, I did not say that I was afraid of dentists. I'm not, it's not needles, it's not drills and shots that bother me. I don't have like an exceptionally low pain tolerance. I like to think of myself as being pretty tough, but it's personal for me. I hate dentists as human beings. Sorry, Tabby, but that's just, that's just where it is. Because if you think about the whole concept, you are giving somebody your money, and a lot of your money, to gas you, to put their hands in your mouth, and to dig around and to hurt you. <laughs> Folks, there's a reason that there's an association of dentists because they need to be on a government list. All right? So I know we've got kids in our service this morning, and parents, you fight your kids every time you take them to the dentist because they scream and cry and holler and don't want to go. Kids, you're exactly right. You're right, but but you know if you ever get a toothache, if something ever goes wrong and you need a dentist, you go because that pain is driving you to the person who can help you even though he or she may hurt you. And you know it's going to hurt. They'll tell you this is going to hurt. That's why they drug you before they do it. That's why they prepare you and send you home with medication and galls and all these because they're going to hurt you. But sometimes they hurt you because ultimately they're healing you. Many of you today are in situations in life that are hurting you. God is not doing that to injure you. He's not doing that to hurt you. He's causing pain so that He can help you, so that He can dig out in you what's infected. He can dig out from you what's broken. And He can make you healthy. So Jesus asked the disciples this penetrating question that gets to the heart of that in verse 26. Why are you afraid? Oh, you have little faith. Now, look, Jesus is not angry because they woke Him up from a nap. He's not like, what's wrong with y'all? But He's asking them legitimately, why are you afraid? So let's ask the disciples, why are you afraid? These are men who believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. He was the king of Israel. He was the one the prophets wrote about and the law looked forward to. Jesus was their savior. He was their Lord. Why were they afraid? The reason they were afraid is because the storm that they could see and feel and experience, that became more real to them than what they believed about him by faith. And that's why we get afraid, isn't it? Because the things we feel, they become more real to us than what we believe and look to by faith. And what is Jesus always doing in our lives? What's he always doing? He's always working. To show us that what we have believed is more real than the storms that blow us off course or the pain that we feel or the hurt that we experience, the disappointment and the losses and the grief and the frustrations. He's always working in everything to say, what you have believed about me is always real. It's always lasting and it will hold you. And church, I promise you, as Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 6, he will finish what he started. He will see it through until his coming and the day of the Lord. There's one more surprise in this text. Jesus has led them into the storm. He sleeps during the storm. He talks to the disciples during the storm. But really the big one, here's what, we, here's what we came to hear today. Jesus is bigger than the storm. Jesus steps out on the boat. I see it kind of in dramatic fashion, you know, with some music playing in the background. Jesus steps out on the boat and he says, peace be still. But here in Matthew, we don't have Jesus' actual words. We learned that from the other gospels. Here the Bible just says he rebukes the wind and the waves. 
And the word rebuke is a stronger word than maybe we, we would give it credit for. It's the way you talk to your dog when your dog's getting on your nerves. You ever lose your patience with your kids? Yeah, me neither. But, you know, sometimes... <laughs> what Jesus basically does is he steps out on the boat and says to the storm, that's enough. And that's it. And a sea that was raging is made into glass. Wind that was blowing listened to him. The dark clouds overhead parted and the sun comes through. The storm was powerful. But Jesus is more powerful. And the disciples are starting to piece this together. Because, understand, the disciples were raised as Jews who thought about the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. They understood and believed that only God could control the sea. The very first verse of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The next verse of the Bible says, in Genesis 1-2, that the Spirit of the Lord moved across the face of the deep. He hovered over the waters and formed all of life and, and brought forth creation from the waters. In the Exodus, remember, they're on the run from Pharaoh and they come to the Red Sea, ocean in front of them, their enemies behind them. Now what are you going to do? And God himself parts the sea. They bring it through on, they walk through on dry ground. Jonah the prophet, God sent a storm into his life, didn't he? And then God sent a big fish in that ocean to swallow him up and get him where he wanted him. Even what we saw just a moment ago in Isaiah chapter 40, God holds the water in the hollow of his hand. They believed that only God could control the sea and the weather. And now here's this guy. Five minutes ago, he was taking a nap. And yet he is doing what only God can do. And it explodes every category of understanding that they have. It totally fries their circuits. That's why they say, what manner of man is this? What are we dealing with here? Because there's power in him in our boat that is bigger than the power in the storm. We couldn't control the storm. We sure can't do anything with him. He is bigger than what was going to kill us. And friends, that is Matthew's point. Matthew's point in this story is that we understand this man who is asleep on the boat is the God who made the sea. And the reason that the wind listened is because it's his wind. The reason that the water obeyed is because it's his water. That every, every molecule of hydrogen and oxygen that made up the Sea of Galilee, they're all his. And when he speaks, they bow and they obey. That's what Matthew is showing us. And it's an amazing, amazing snapshot in this picture. Maybe the clearest and most vivid in all of the life of Jesus, if you think about it. Where you see both his humanity, he is a man who is taking a nap. And his divinity. He is a God who controls all of creation because it's his creation. He's both. He is the God-man. He is the Lord Jesus. He is our God who took on flesh so that he could come into our world. But why would he do that? Why is Jesus here? Why, why, why the God-man? That's what Ansel wanted to know, right? Why the God-man? Because as human beings, we needed a man who could represent us to God. But as sinners, the only way our sin could ever be overcome is by God coming for us and pursuing us. And Jesus is standing on the boat here that day saying, I am the God-man who has come to save you from your sins. And in saving us from our sins, Jesus is going to fix the brokenness that is in this world. 
That's why He came, to reign as King. And so this snapshot of Christology is incredible, but it begs the question, if the wind and the water obeyed Him, what about us? If they listened completely, when Jesus said, be still, and they were still, what are we going to do as Jesus invites us to follow Him today? The wind obeys Him. The water obeys Him. Do you? Here's another question. It's related to that. Jesus commands you to trust Him. Are you going to trust Him? Knowing that He is your Savior? The God-man who came into the world to die in your place and take your sin and forgive you and give you everlasting life? And, that we're, and yet we go through life like the disciples, worried and panicked and in fear and overwhelmed, thinking, Lord, why don't you care about me? Are you going to trust Him? Here's what you can do. Here's what you can do. You can trust in God's providence, trust in His care, trust in His heart for you, and you can go through the storms of life exactly the way Jesus did, at rest. Because you know, as the hymn writer said, this is my Father's world. It's His. It's all in His hands. I'm in His hands. And He is going to take care of me. Now, I know today that some of y'all are going through some stuff right now. And when you hear a sermon like this, when you're going through some stuff, it either really, really helps you or really, really gets on your nerves. Because you're hearing somebody yell about you saying, just trust, yell to you saying, just trust in Jesus. And you're like the disciples, you're thinking, man, it's not that easy. I know, I've been there and I will be again. But you can trust Him. Because He loves you. He cares as a man who walked through pain and suffering. And who will walk through it all with you. And as the God who's in control over all of it, you can trust Him. He loves you. And He wants to do His work in you to show you His greatness and show you His glory. Maybe even more importantly, you need to know today that we live in a world that is broken because of our sin. And that the only reason there's any kind of suffering at all in this world is because sin is in this world. Now, that doesn't mean that you somehow deserve every bad thing that happens to you. Sometimes we just do dumb stuff and we get ourselves in messes, right? But our world's broken because our world is separated from God. And Jesus came into this world to fix that brokenness. Because the storm of God's wrath is going to come for all of us. But Jesus threw himself into that storm at the cross and satisfied the wrath of God against your sin to save you. And if you've never trusted him before, He invites you to come to Him, experience forgiveness, to find grace so that you can go through life wherever it leads you with confidence that He's there and that He cares. We're going to stand together this morning. Our musicians are coming. We're going to have an invitation at this point in our service. And we don't believe at Sharon Heights there's any magic or any spirituality or anything significant that happens just because you move from a seat to an altar. But some of you today have felt and heard God speaking to you and you need to come and have a time of prayer and it may be every bit as dramatic and and no more complicated than what the disciples did in the boat Lord I'm struggling help me help me I don't see right now that you care for me help me maybe you need to come right now I'm going to ask you to come right now while I'm inviting you come and say Lord I want this storm to be in your hands Maybe some of you are going through that kind of stuff right now and it's keeping you from being obedient to Him because you feel like, I can't trust Him. I can't trust Him because it's so hard. 
And you see that in your life right now. You need to bring your disobedience to Him. Some of you need to come today. For the very first time in your life, you need to come and you need to bring your sin to Him. Say, Lord, I'm a sinner. And I know I deserve judgment. But Lord, I bring it to You. And Lord, I want You to forgive me. And you'll find a Savior who is every bit as willing to forgive as He is to calm storms. In fact, I'll make you this promise. We go through adversity in life, and sometimes we pray and we pray and pray, and God may give us peace and He may calm us, but He doesn't always change our circumstances, does He? But I do promise you this, that if you are here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, that if you would come to Him today, and you would call out to Him in repentance and faith and ask for mercy, you would have it today. It'll be fixed today. Thank God that's His promise. You can come and you're welcome to Jesus. I invite you to come. Let me pray and then we'll sing. Lord, you invite us to come just as we are. Lord, help us to do that with all of our unbelief, with all of our frailty, with all of our pain and our questions. God, help people now to come to bring their storms, their fear, their sin, and their unbelief to you. Do your work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.